You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Andrew Scobell. I'm a distinguished fellow or gray-haired fellow on the China program at USIP. Uh, along with uh, my esteemed uh, colleague, Dr. F Carla Freeman. And it's a pleasure uh, to uh, say a few introductory rem remarks uh, for an old friend, uh, Dr. Suishang Zhao at the University of Denver. I've known uh, for decades, and uh, he's one of the most, uh, you know, be one of the best informed, most astute analysts and scholars of of Chinese politics, uh, Chinese uh, foreign policy. And um, even though officially we don't do book talks at, at USIP, um, you know, he's going to be talking about his latest book, which, as you can see, I've, I've marked up. I'm actually writing a review. It'll be a positive review. Uh, you know, um, but uh, that's because it, it, it's such a fabulous book. And I would say it's one of the most important books written on Chinese foreign policy in, in recent decades certainly in the last decade, because it not only uh, you know, uses you know, an incredible uh, rich array of, of uh, primary and, and secondary sources, um, but it also frames Chinese foreign policy making in, in big picture terms and interprets it across eras. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's one of the strengths, uh, one of the tremendous strengths of, uh, of of this book. Not to say there aren't other great books out there, uh, but they tend to be more focused on specific issues. So, a a, a broader, um, uh, big picture approach, um, and yet w with appropriate detail and nuance. Um, so. You know, the dragon roars back. It really, it highlights the importance. Of, in, of leaders. Leaders matter. And I think that's, that's the, you know, don't take my word for it, but you know, make sure you listen attentively uh, to the discussion that follows and be sure uh, to read, read this book. Um, it will, you'll be very glad you did. Um, over to you, Connor. Thank you so much, Andrew, for that uh, wonderful introduction to a great event. We're thrilled to have uh, Professor Zhao here today. Uh, let me just say quickly a few words about USIP. If you're not familiar with the US Institute of Peace, it was established in 1984 uh, by Congress uh, as a, a place uh, a federally funded place to study peace, and we work on uh, fostering peace uh, around the world. Uh, we have a China program that looks at uh, at opportunities to work uh, constructively uh, with China, but also to address challenges that China's rise uh, creates around the world for uh, countries and the United States. Uh, we. Um, uh, as, as Andrew uh, Scobell said, uh, we don't do book talks, but uh, we, we do talk a lot about uh, China, and so we're uh, very, very happy that we can uh, do a little bit of both today. Um, uh, Andrew Scobell, of course, is one of the US's leading experts on Chinese foreign and security policy, and I'll just say he's a great co uh, colleague whose prolific writings keep me uh, uh, moving and, and try to keep up with him, so um, it's, it's great. Uh, let me sit, take a moment just to say a few more thank yous. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the USIP events team for putting this event together. Also, uh, colleagues Kemi Adelawari and also uh, Allison McFarland, who took a lot of time out of some really busy schedules traveling and doing research to uh, put this together. And I also want to thank SICE because this is a joint, the first ever uh, joint USIP uh, JHU uh, event. Uh and uh, not only are they lending some brain power to the event in the form of uh, Professor Bowman, uh, I also want to thank Andrew Murtha, who really wanted to be here today uh, for his, his uh, support and the support of his SICE China Research uh, Center. Um, 
We, uh, we also want to thank the SISE students and staff who have come to this event uh, and uh, may be attending online. And students, we have a chance for you to sit down with Professor Zhao, thanks uh, to his generous uh, generosity in giving some time after the event. But we invite all of you to uh, enjoy a, a small reception uh, following our, our approximately hour-long uh, discussion. Um, and of course, um, I want to thank Sweisheng for coming all the way from Denver and joining us today. So I am moderating, so I have the honor of introducing both Professor Bowman and uh, uh, Professor Zhao. Uh, professor Bowman is the Jill McGovern and Stephen Muller Assistant Professor of China Studies and International Affairs at Johns Hopkins SICE, where he also directs the Pacific Community Initiative. And David's uh, research looks at economic and political development in China and its uh, implications for US-China relations. And he's already himself uh, published a fantastic book on, uh, that involves leadership, uh, incentivized development for in China, leaders, governance, and growth uh, in China's counties, uh, published uh, by Cambridge uh, in 2016. And that looked at the political uh, foundations of economic growth in China, uh, look, doing some really rich empirical research uh, on, uh, at the county level in China. So looking forward to his comments uh, uh, very much today. Before uh, joining SICE, uh, David was an economist at the World Bank and uh, also uh, uh, had a postdoc at Harvard's Ash uh, Center uh, for Democratic Governance and, and Innovation. Uh, you all know, I think, Professor Zhao uh, already. He is uh, the professor uh, and director of the Center for China-U.S. Cooperation at the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver and a founding editor of the, uh, the incredibly um, uh, valuable uh, Journal of Contemporary China. It doesn't, it's not just a quarterly, I think it's actually published five times a six. year, six times a year, sorry, I'm behind the times. Uh, and uh, it, it is a, a, a repository of some really cutting edge research on uh, China uh, domestic politics, economy, and uh, international uh, policy. Uh, I won't go through all of Dr. Zhao's uh, honors, but uh, he, uh, he is a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and on the Board of Governors of the U.S. Committee of the Council for Security Cooperation in the Asia-Pacific. And he also is a, uh, has, has a relations, uh, an honorary ginger professor at Beida at Renmin University and, in, and, and almost all of the top universities in China, it seems. Um, his uh, PhD is in political science from the University of California in San Diego. But mostly I want to say that he has just, he's just uh, written an extraordinary number of books. And every time I think after my decades of trying to understand China that I've arrived at some unique or, or um, novel insight, I realized that probably 20 years ago, Professor Zhao already addressed that issue. And, uh, and so I just have to go and, and buy or, or take out of the library one of his wonderful books. So uh, without further ado, let me uh, let him uh, give his talk, and then we'll ask uh, Professor Bowman to uh, discuss it briefly, and uh, then uh, we'll, we'll turn uh, the, uh, the mics over uh, and, and also uh, take some questions from uh, over, the, over the internet from people who are watching uh, virtually. So thank you very much. Thank you, Connor, for the invitation and also for the wonderful introduction. And also thank you for all the team at the USIP for putting this together. Andrew has not seen you for some, such a long time. Really opportunity, honor to see you again. And Professor Bowman, last time in Canada. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for reading to my comments on my book. Uh, so is that, okay. So uh, the book uh, tries to trace the trajectory of uh, China rise and uh, the forces behind its rise. The first question people normally ask, ask uh, why you wrote this book? <laughs> so my answer to these questions are this, in the this screen you can see empir empirically and also theoretically. Empirically, I've been teaching a class on Chinese foreign policy, but I have uh, not found a single book which could cover the all 70 plus years of PRC history. Uh, those books are what I call unidimensional or static, meaning that they study bilateral relationships uh, between China and uh, certain countries, regions, and also during certain 
period. So a book provides the whole 70 plus years of history has been somehow not there. Theoretically, uh, uh, scholars uh, have used uh, most often two theories to understand China's uh, rise. One is what I call structural realist uh, theories, which uh, 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 emphasizes on the relative power. Uh, when China's relative power uh, rises, its uh, ambition expands. That's what your book also talked about. And a rising China would inevitably uh, challenge the U.S. dominance and also try to redefine its uh, interest in the relationships with neighbors. And this theory has been used most to explain the recent rise of China. But if we look back the history of 70 years, I found it's not sufficient. Because when China's relative power was weak during most time, China was very, very confrontational and fought six wars, including the war with the most powerful nation on earth, the US, and fought wars uh, with the Soviet Union, with uh, India. And uh, Deng Xiaoping moderated Chinese foreign policy. But China's relative power did not change that much. And uh, his successors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, continued the moderate foreign policy. But China was rising, its power relatively, relative power rising dramatically. And uh, Xi Jinping came to office. Uh, he shifted Deng Xiaoping's uh, no-profile foreign policy. But China's uh, national power did not rise that much. In fact, uh, in the last 10 years, we have seen the slowdown of China economy, and China's power has been, relative power has not been that uh, powerful. So structural realist theory cannot explain that well. Another theory used most often is so-called regime type theory, which attributes uh, China's authoritarian, uh, 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 confrontational or aggressive behavior to its authoritarian regime. Uh, but China, China's authoritarian regime has not changed that much in the last 70 years. But China's foreign policy has shifted from time to time. So that theory could not uh, expand that well either. So my book develops what uh, Andrew mentioned, that leadership-centered uh, framework argues that leaders matter in all political systems, but matter much more in authoritarian to totalitarian system, especially in China's Leninist uh, system where the emphasis is so-called the uh, hierarchy, uh, discipline, in Chinese word, democratic centralism. In that case, uh, leaders have a tremendous power to make foreign policy decisions, to chart new courses if they wish uh, for Chinese foreign policy. But the problems I find in my research is that uh, not every Chinese leader has used that power to chart new course. In fact, by official account, there are five generations of Chinese leadership, uh, led by Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and Xi Jinping. They missed three. Uh, one is Zhao Ziyang, one is Hua Guofeng, one is Zhao Ziyang, and one Hu Yaobang. So I put all, all eight together uh, to distinguish them into three types of leaders. One is uh, so-called transformational leaders. Um, these leaders have uh, new visions and uh, political wisdoms to navigate uh, the power jungle of uh, PRC and also uh, uh, mobilize domestic uh, institutional ideational sources uh, and uh, strategically responded to international environment, even try to shape international environment. So three leaders among the eight are transform, transformational, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and Xi Jinping. Uh, Mao Zedong had so-called revolutionary foreign policy in my book. Uh, in the Chinese official language, he made China uh, independent, stand up. Deng Xiaoping had a developmental foreign policy who made China rich, and Xi Jinping now called his, only foreign, his own Chinese foreign policy big power foreign policy to make China strong. The second type is so-called transactional leaders. Uh, these people uh, uh, um, did not make change, much changes. They stayed on course, but they survived power. Uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao are two typical 
transactional leaders. They uh, succeeded Deng Xiaoping's uh, foreign policy, uh, continued Deng Xiaoping's foreign policy direction, um, and survived two terms in office. And third, I call them failed leaders. Uh, they might have new visions, but who cares? <laughs> they lost power in the power jungle. And Hua Guofeng, Hu Yaobang, and Zhao Ziyang are this type of uh, uh, failed uh, leaders. So my book, this is a uh, uh, framework in my book, uh, transitional leaders, trans transformational leaders at top. And they have new visions, and uh, they uh, held powers in, in fact, all three lifetime, uh, either with personal, charismatic uh, authority or with office, uh, authority. Then they constructed ideational environments. Here I'm talking about they use historical memories and also nationalist uh, inspirations uh, to support advance their foreign policy agenda. And also they restructured uh, policy making institutions uh, to facilitate their policy uh, making and implementation. And uh, in the meantime, uh, on the other side, the international side, they exploited external environment. Here, when I talk international environment, I'm talking about distribution of power and also the, the order, international order, talking about regimes, rules, norms, institutions. They do that. Uh, my book, uh, my, my book uh, in fact, uh, uh, documented uh, focus on the three transformational leaders, how they, uh, what were their new visions, and how they uh, uh, navigated in the political environment and also mobilized resources uh, domestically and internationally. So uh, I have uh, here all three leaders, uh, Mao's visions and uh, Mao's uh, 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 power man manipulation, uh, 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 manipulation and institutional uh, 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 reconstructs and uh, uh, how he mobilized international sources uh, and uh, international sources. The, the, my conclusion to Mao was uh, Mao Zedong's revolution foreign policy the question I ask if uh, Mao's foreign policy, revolutionary foreign policy, defensive or offensive. So what I argued in my book is that rhetorically it was offensive, militant. But his priority was to defend the border and regime security uh, in response to what he perceived as hostile, uh, 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 falling in fact US uh, and imperialist powers. Uh, I have a chapter talking about how to try to keep the wolf off the border instead of fighting overseas. Although he had some kind of uh, actions in the third world uh, to support the insurgencies, but it's still for his uh, regime's security. And uh, so China's foreign policy during Mao's time was essentially reactive rather than proactive. Although it was revolutionary, then I try to see how uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, developmental foreign policies, visions. Mao emphasized war and uh, revolution. Deng Xiaoping tries to shift to emphasize peace and development, uh, use foreign policy to create uh, so-called peaceful international and regional environment for economic modernization. And uh, also I try to see how he was a pragmatic strong man. I'm also a crusader in my book talk about the, so how he was a consensus builder. He ratified a decision if uh, he delegate the authorities to the bureaucrats. If they reach consensus, he ratified that automatically. He steps in only if they cannot reach consensus. That's his uh, leadership style. And also Deng Xiaoping, how his, his uh, Mao Zedong and him both emphasize so a century of humiliation. But he restructured, constructed the narrative, emphasized if China was underdeveloped, it will be beaten. So we have to develop. Uh, in order to um, to redeem the century of humiliation, two different narratives, and his nationalism was more aff affirmative and pragmatic, uh, rather than some assertive type. 
and uh, uh, his uh, international uh, uh, resources or international responses was more kind of low profile. Low profile. In fact, uh, during his uh, term, he had two major decisions. One was to normalize relationship with the U.S. and another was no profile after the end of Cold War. Both worked out beautifully for China's economic development. And uh, so the, uh, ans the argument for him was that China during his time was a moderate rising power. They tried to build an image of a peace-loving and responsible power and uh, try to assure international security China rise was an opportunity instead of a threat. That's what Deng Xiaoping's uh, foreign policy. So Xi Jinping now has changed entirely. Uh, his vision was the China dream. Uh, rejuvenation. Uh, um, the Chinese uh, talk about China dream uh, includes both uh, uh, national dream and a military strong uh, military uh, dream. And uh, his uh, power uh, consolidation and institutional reconstruction is also very dramatic, very different. Recentralized power have a top level uh, design. And uh, uh, his historical, uh, uh, he used historical memories are also very different. Um, Mao and then emphasized central humiliation. Although he still talked about central humiliation, but he moved more to the, the other side of the, the coin of Chinese history, talking about the, the glorious imperial China and try, try to return China to those glorious positions, very different. And also his nationalist aspiration, also very different, is a very effort, uh, uh, assertive. Instead of uh, emphasizing upon a positive, inclusive us, he tried to target uh, evil and negative others, that is Western evil, uh, uh, liberal ideas and evil powers. And uh, he now had his uh, foreign policy uh, uh, orientation internationally is much more confrontational and emphasizing fighting uh, spread and try to organize so-called so anti-Germany coalition, Russia, Iran, North Korea, those uh, countries. Uh, and uh, he has uh, emphasized uh, the, uh, I mean, redefined China's uh, relationships with neighbors uh, and uh, try to challenge the international order. So the question here for Xi Jinping is uh, his power is, uh, his foreign policy is more offensive or defensive? Uh, uh, I don't know how I can answer this question at this point, but I would argue that his foreign policy is overreached for sure. And uh, his China dream has put China in a very uh, difficult position in the national arena, so many enemies. And uh, in fact, now we have some that uh, 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 setback. I was in Beijing last week, just the one by one road. You can see those photos. Only 25 head of states instead of 30, 40 in the first, uh, second uh, forum. So you can see China's uh, foreign policy on him, although he tries to restore China's uh, uh, great uh, glory, but I don't know how much he can successful. That's what the, the conclusion is here. So. That I'll stop here. Well, thank you so much for that uh, wonderful introduction to a really rich book. I have to admit, I have only read sections because it's very detailed and worth a very careful read. But over to David for Professor Bullman for his comments. Great, thank you so much. And I have read the whole thing. And we'll have oh, thank <laughs> you. Full comments. But uh, thank you so much to USIP uh, for inviting me here, and thank you to Dr. Freeman for especially uh, inviting me here, and especially. Uh, great thanks to Professor Zhao for writing this tour de force and allowing me to read it. Um, so I only have, I think, five to seven minutes. That's what I've been, the time I've been given, so I will try to uh, make sure I stick to that, therefore stick to my notes. Um, I'll briefly provide my, my, my takeaways from the book, major takeaways and why I think it's so important, and then I'm going to raise two broad conceptual questions that I think are, are important to address that came up in my mind at many points in the book. So the book, as, as we just heard, takes this leader-centered uh, framework to describe this sweeping history uh, of PRC foreign policy. Right, so 
uh, Professor Zhao argues that structure matters. It's does not that structure doesn't matter, but it only matters in the sense that it impacts foreign policy when it's acted upon by China's leaders using their own ideational lenses, using their own decision-making processes that they've created, and using their own perceptions about the current desirability of international norms. Um, this framework, as we just saw, helps explain the shift from a revolutionary foreign policy under Xi to a developmental foreign policy under Deng to a big power foreign policy under Xi. Sorry, did I say Xi at the beginning? I think Mao is clearly what I was going for there. Um, and the book also shows how, really, in a really interesting way, how China's transformational leaders intentionally manipulate nationalism and public sentiment um, and restructure foreign policy institutions, as well, I think, in how, how this is sort of endogenous, how those, those restructurings then reshape and constrain their own foreign policy in a really interesting way. And this helps to explain the strident turn in Chinese nationalism after 2008. Um, it explains the emergence of Xi as the chairman of everything more recently. Uh, and then the book then analyzes how, how leaders have exploited the international environment. And in particular, you know, in concluding with Xi, talks about how uh, China has become a revisionist stakeholder. And I know Professor Zhao already has an article about this, which I've read and assigned to classes, but reading it in the context of the book gives it so much more depth and I think originality in how it complements the rest of the argument. Um, so that, that, that was great. Um, and then the book ends by looking to the future and sadly in a very pessimistic way. <laughs> Not that I disagree, but I think it's pessimistic for, for several reasons. One, it's uh, pessimistic about conflict. You conclude that Xi Jinping doesn't listen to anyone in the institutional structures he's created. Um, he harbors these deep grievances against the West in particular. Uh, and he has seemingly delusions of grandeur almost in terms of interpreting China's own power. Uh, it's not a, that's a recipe for disaster, basically. Um, and then it's also pessimistic in thinking about uh, the prospects for global governance and global leadership, really in concluding that China and the U.S. are both beset by deep internal challenges, and neither one is really capable of taking on a global leadership position. Um, so I, I completely agree with the pessimism, but it is, does end on a very pessimistic note. So this book is really excellent for students, policymakers, scholars alike. Um, I'm looking forward to assigning it to my classes. For, for students, you can assign the whole book, of course, but the way the book is written, and I really encourage you to read it, um, the individual chapters really stand independently. So you can assign a chapter on nationalism, you can assign a chapter on China's core interests, you can assign a chapter on revisionist stakeholders or on institutionalization under Xi. So this is really important and, and makes it really accessible to, to, to students um, in the classrooms. Uh, for policymakers, to really objective account of these deep changes in a really accessible way with a lot of really, really deep information and very informative. Uh, it helps us interpret Chinese foreign policy. We can interpret things through this lens, the framework provided, looking at today's policies and even looking forward and helping to predict. Extremely useful for policymakers. Uh, and for scholars, as, as was already highlighted by uh, Professor Global at the beginning, right? I mean, this is the most up-to-date account we have now of foreign policy in the PRC. It incorporates Xi, but doesn't do so in some idiosyncratic, Xi is new and different way. It incorporates him by enhancing our understanding of past PRC foreign policy as well. So, you know, extremely valuable book, tour de force. Um, and I recommend it to all of you. So, my two broad questions, based in part on things that I've researched and just things that came up a bunch in, in the book to me. The first one is thinking about the role of US policy. I know we're here at USIP, we have the State Department right here, so it's tough to avoid. Um, but thanks to, thanks to Carla, a couple years ago I had the opportunity to write an article about the economic security dilemma in US-China relations. And of course you could think not an economic, just the military security dilemma as well. But the, this dynamic of reactions and defensive behavior that's interpreted as offensive behavior and how each side reacts to the other. Um, and so I wonder to what extent she has been responding to the US. You talk in the book about you know, the, the party promoting the idea that this diminishing West is trying to constrain China and won't let China rise. And that was a big theme in the 90s as well, um, but didn't maybe get as much traction until under Xi. And I wonder if there are US policies that could have been different that would have led to a different interpretation under Xi. So that's one question on this feedback process. I know the book is about Chinese foreign policy, not US foreign policy. I think insofar as US foreign policy comes up in the book, um, you have a, a pretty strong critique of the early Obama years and the sort of weakness of that policy. Um, but I, but but after that, are there policies that could have shifted? Are there, was there a way to be more accommodating of China and IMF voting chair reforms, the AIB, or in the pivot, or anything else that would have changed policy, or not? Maybe, maybe, maybe this was all, all written just by, just by Xi. So that was one broad question. Um, my second broad question, which I guess is really two questions, sorry, uh, is really what is a transformational leader, and in what ways is Xi transformational? Um, so 
Uh, as Carla highlighted, I've done some work at the county level on leaders. I'm really interested in leadership. I think it's very clear from all sorts of qualitative and quantitative accounts that leaders matter a lot. Um, but I think we still don't know how they matter. It's very complicated at times, right? We don't know how much it matters based on individual personalities uh, and that sort of level of agency uh, versus the structure of domestic politics and domestic institutions. Uh, so I guess the question then is, in Xi's case, you know, if another leader had been selected by the party at, the, at that juncture after the global financial crisis, when we already saw this aggressive turn in Chinese foreign policy, um, would they have been constrained in doing many of the same things that Xi has, has, has done? So that's one level of the question. The other is in what ways is Xi transformational? Um, when I was a student under Mike Lambton 15 years ago, that's when I first came across the James McGregor Burns framework of transformational versus transactional. And he brought it up as explaining the, the transition from Mao as a transformational leader who had charismatic leadership and the ability to inspire followers to Deng, who we argued was very transactional in his ability to work within the party system, right, to make things happen. Um, now, you're using the term somewhat differently, and that's, of course, fine. You're using it as transforming foreign policy, which indeed Xi is doing. But then I guess my question is whether Xi himself has this effective charisma, has ideological ideals that inspire. You know, we see a ton of attention to Xi Jinping thought. We know people are being forced to learn Xi Jinping thought. But is there anything there that inspires followers? To me, it seems like Xi's reliance on institutional change uh, shows that he's a very transactional leader, actually, and I wonder if this itself limits his strength in, in several domains. Um, so I look generally more at central local relations in China and economic relations, and I had the opportunity uh, actually to, to write an article for your journal several years ago, when we met in Banff, right, um, which was looking at policy implementation under Xi at the provincial level. Um, and I, I tried to argue with the co-author that policy implementation still wasn't very good. There were a lot of constraints on sort of how people actually chose to follow Xi, even when his own people were put in power. Um, and so in foreign policy, I guess the question then is, could Xi really oversee a massive about face in Chinese foreign policy? You know, in the US, of course, we talk about only Nixon could have gone to China. Um, I wonder if only Mao could have received him, right? I mean, could Xi, Xi's done a lot of ch major changes that you document, but they've all been in sort of this assertive, constrained nationalism direction. And I wonder if he, he's powerful enough to, to have the opposite response. Thank you. That was fantastic, I think. And I hope uh, you found that uh, those comments useful and the questions very stimulating. Would you like to take yeah, any yeah, of those I questions? Can just Great. very briefly. She's uh, uh, attitudes and she's party taught U.S. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, as you mentioned, uh, she came to power after the, the financial crisis, 2009, 2000. And at that point, uh, the nationalist uh, uh, confident, confident uh, of the Chinese elites, Chinese people was very, very high. So she uh, wrote on that tie, thought that China time arrived, mm -hmm. uh, and U.S. was doomed. U.S. Uh, was in trouble declining. So uh, that's how, at that time, eventually he talked about uh, the uh, uh, the, the uh, fundamental change on scene in a century, uh, that in which uh, uh, East is in rise, uh, the West is in declining, is is uh, especially economically. Mm -hmm. So uh, he became so confident. Now China could deal with U.S. in China terms, and that's how he reinterpreted so-called uh, the big power, the new model of big power relationship with three principles, uh, uh, no conflict, uh, mutual respect, and win-win. Here the key was uh, uh, mutual respect on each other's call, national interests, which is defined in my own mind uh, as a bottom line of national survival. And they cannot compromise, mm -hmm. they cannot negotiate on South China Sea, on Taiwan issue debate, uh, all those issues. Uh, and uh, in 2015, uh, Huan Gang, those people talk about uh, China uh, uh, overtook the US uh, economically and uh, even technologically, everything. He believed in all those things. So he was a very uh, uh, confrontational in the relationship with the United States during that period. But I think he changed uh, when Trump came to office mm -hmm. to launch a trade war, everything. Then he suddenly realized uh, China still, uh, to a great extent, uh, uh, depending 
on the U.S. technology, everything. But he have no way to back up, so he uh, continued these confrontational uh, uh, attitudes and also partly taught the U.S. But I think since then, he deep in his heart, mm -hmm. he was very insecure mm -hmm. and uh, felt uh, the U.S. is a very big threat uh, to China. And uh, but uh, he continued this confrontational uh, um, uh, uh, posture, and China has since then in a big tr uh, trouble. That's why now when U.S. put the Oliver uh, uh, branch, he he took that at this point. But I don't know how far this relationship can go because uh, he wake up, he has wakened America. Uh, Spanic moment, I think came. That's what I told Chinese friend. Mm -hmm. You awakened America. Uh, America will fight, so you you have to be ready. That's why I'm very pes pessimistic in that case because he is a, 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 a dictator, and uh, these type of things are there. And uh, so the, the relationship, I think, w w I just I'm writing an article. The title is "Talk the Talk, Walk the Walk." Although they talk to each other. But the policy is different. The second question you talk about if Xi Jinping is a transformational uh, uh, personality as an agent, uh, given all the structure, all those things, he's a, a certainly agent, but he has his own visions uh, and uh, to restore China to the uh, ancient glory or power position. So he, a lot of things will not happen without Xi Jinping, so clearly one by one road. Mm -hmm. And even the uh, artificial lands built in South China Sea. I talked to friends in China. They said that when Hu Jintao was in power, uh, a lot of people proposed to him to build those artificial islands. Hu Jintao said, "No, no, we cannot do that. Too productive, and uh, would be in some kind of a trouble for neighboring countries on the U.S." Twenty. 13, just one year, when Xi Jinping came to office, same people proposed to him. He said, great idea. He built that. So without Xi Jinping, we will not see all those kind of uh, initiatives. From that perspective, his transformational, he has own vision. Whatever he, people talk to him, fit in vision, he'll go for it. Mm -hmm. uh, if uh, without Xi Jinping, Putin and China's relationship will not be that type of close at this time. He really. He's my generation. I think he's deep heart. He has that kind of admire to, to, to Russia, mm -hmm. to Russian culture, Russian um, power, Putin's uh, strongman leadership. Mm -hmm. So these type of things, I think, makes him transformational, for sure. Well, thank, thank you both for a great start to this conversation today. I'm just going to ask one question. I had several. David, you, you phrased one of Sorry. my questions much better than I would. So uh, I'm glad you got that out there. But I guess the question that I'll, I'll choose amongst those I have, and I do have many uh, because your, your book is so stimulating, is you mention a number of visionary leaders. That's another category, um, including, you, you include Huo Guofeng, which I kind of like, um, but also, of course, uh, Hu Yaobang and, and Zhao Ziyang. Why do they fail in the Chinese system? And do you see another visionary leader emerging uh, in the Chinese system uh, based on your study? And visionary leaders, they have a visions for sure, but it, uh, only with visions in the Chinese system is not enough. Mm -hmm. And you have to manipulate, you have to navigate the power. In fact, when you said that, I saw a lot of political distance in China. I worked with them in the 90s, uh, 80s. All these people have a new vision, including those with thoughts young those people. If they were in a democratic system, not in the United States, they could be a very successful politicians mm -hmm. and uh, run elections and also gain followers. But in the Chinese system, visions are not enough. If uh, you cannot survive or gain power, you are either put in jail <laughs> or you just uh, do nothing. So in that case, uh, Zhao Ziyang, I think he had a vision. Hui Yaobang, they had visions, but they were overshadowed. Mm -hmm. um, by Deng Xiaoping, his vision, and by the political system, which did not allow them to um, uh, to prevail in their visions. So, in the in that case, uh, uh, visionary leaders, uh, China is not short of visionary leaders, and uh, just uh, short of those uh, leaders with vision and also. Uh, 
political wisdoms to survive. So in that context, I don't know if we can see a new visionary leader emerge uh, uh, emerges uh, at this moment. And uh, Xi Jinping, he ha he's a visionary leader for sure. And uh, he has tried to sub suppress whoever has different visions from him, put whoever those people in jail. And uh, he tries to stay in power for ever, just like Mao Zedong. So I don't know if uh, there's a new visionary leader who can emerge anytime soon. Well, on that, uh, with that sanguine assessment, uh, let me uh, thank the audience for joining us both online and here in the room. And I invite you to uh, ask questions. And I think there's a mic that we can pass around. Well, we have some online questions. Thank you. Thank you, Lindy. Yeah, so. Uh, how might the rise of China and its great power competition with the U.S. impact the Middle East? I'm not Middle <laughs> Specialist, uh, uh, but uh, from what my limited knowledge uh, about China's relationship with Middle East, uh, China has certainly tried to become global power, including an influence in Middle East and. Uh, uh, the, the, mediate, the mediation role between uh, uh, Saudis uh, and uh, 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 Israel is a, something China has tried to do, and, but I don't know how much they can do at this time. And uh, it, it's very biased on the Hamas uh, 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 Israel conflict. I was in Beijing last week. Uh, I was at the Chongyang uh, 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 Financial Institute. They have a, like this type of setting uh, uh, forum. Uh, three people, me and uh, Wu Xiaoqiu from uh, Renmin University and a Russian uh, uh, guy. Uh, he came for one by one, one, one row. The uh, audience keep asking this kind of uh, China's uh, uh, attitude toward Hamas. Uh, I mean, they used the, the Chinese frame that not Hamas uh, Israel as a uh, Palestinian Israel, and uh, the Wu Xiaoqiu, the China side person, keep correcting people. It's not Palestine; it's Hamas. Mm. So you can see the Chinese uh, confusion here. So I don't know how much they can really play a role there. They are in a very kind of delicate position on the Middle East at this time. David, do you want to respond to a question? No, that's no. okay. Um, another question that we have is uh, on uh, Xi's vision for China's role in its periphery, um, something that you touch on and you've written extensively on in, in many other writings and, and a, a topic of great interest to me personally. What, what, how do, what do you see uh, Xi think, thinking about for the future, perhaps, on, uh, uh, for its periphery? I think in Xi's mind, the Tianxia, the on, on, all on the heaven type of uh, uh, idea for uh, China's uh, uh, role in the so-called periphery. Uh, when China uh, talking periphery, uh, they have a, she has a new term called the Da Zhoubian, greater periphery, not only Southeast Asia and uh, uh, Northeast Asia and uh, South Asia, but also the West Asia and uh, the uh, uh, Pacific, Oceanian um, Pacific. And uh, that's the, uh, for his China dream to become a global power, that's a pathway that China could uh, become, just not United States, goes from uh, 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 North America, South America to become a big power. So South America is America's. The U.S. is a backyard, so um, and the periphery, so-called the, the uh, Asia-Pacific, they will not use Indo-Pacific. Asia-Pacific is the backyard for China to be uh, dominant. They always use the Zhudao, that area, to, to control the agenda setting in that area. But uh, China, the most 
concern China has is the U.S. in the Asia Pacific. U.S. has been there for since World War II. Has so many uh, allies, uh, partners. Uh, so uh, Xi Jinping ideally would want to drive America out of uh, this neighborhood, but I don't think he uh, can do that. He un also understands that I think at this moment. So he has to live with the reality of uh, he has to deal with U.S. for his so-called uh, uh, East Asia great uh, power uh, uh, dream in the Pacific, Asian Pacific. Thank you. Any any uh, more questions? Yes, over there. And if you could identify yourself, that would be wonderful. Thanks. Hello. Um, I'm with IRI. I'm a program officer. My name is Anne. Nice to meet you. Um, curious about what you think about Xi's long arm in rejecting criticism against the CCP. Uh, this is reflected in the work of United Front Department, the work that they do, and overseas pulsing, and all the other tactics that he had. Do you think this was needed timely in Xi's um, when he was in power, or do you think it could have taken a di different direction? in being more of a friendly and diplomatic country. I mean, you, you, she's using United Front in overseas? Basically, the tactics he has for, like, uh, to control the narrative of anything against the CCP. Yeah, um, uh, uh, all Chinese Communist Party leaders have uh, used those type of uh, party propaganda, United Front uh, intuitions. Uh, but uh, Xi Jinping has uh, uh, enlarged, uh, he had the enlarged uh, diplomacy, meaning including more intuitions into his uh, 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 diplomatic activities. Uh, so, other than the state agencies, foreign ministry, all those uh, commerce uh, ministry, and also military diplomacy, he has uh, empowered the party. Uh, agencies, United Front Department, uh, uh, Central uh, Liaison Department, and also Central Propaganda uh, Department, uh, to use them to the, the way he used them, uh, uh, distinguish them from the state diplomacy is that uh, these agencies work on the long term. Uh, objectives of the party. State diplomacy works on uh, daily operation of a diplomacy. So that's what you talk about, try to, he thought, tell China stories and also try to correct those uh, wrong images uh, of China to stop criticism of uh, Communist Party, uh, common regime and Chinese foreign policy. That's how he used those agencies. And uh, then they put them forefront and in the U.S. and Western countries now, people talk about the China operational, uh, influence operation, and uh, alarmed uh, these countries. But those agencies are still very active. Uh, although, uh, I would argue that uh, uh, this kind of alarm, of course, is justifiable, but it's over alarm because uh, these agencies uh, they operate primarily domestic in the domestic front. You try to work with uh, so-called those uh, non-party, non-communist party, INIs partners, and the domestic control. Internationally, I don't know how successful they are at this moment. Thank you for your question. Um, I can take another one. Uh, I have a. a I'm going to just because of the question. I have another one that I had written down that I'm going to ask. Uh, uh, Mao Zedong talked about power coming uh, out of the barrel of the gun, and uh, or a gun, and uh, Deng Xiaoping clearly saw uh, economic development as the source of, of uh, China's power. Uh, and uh, what, what do you see Xi Jinping uh, seeing the source of China's power as? Where, where does power come from for um, Xi? She's, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, emphasized uh, and the legitimacy of the Communist Party based upon economic performance. And uh, Mao Zedong used uh, uh, coercive power. And uh, Xi Jinping, I think, returns, has returned to Mao's time using coercive power uh, uh, because he is so insecure. The security, just like the U.S. now under Central China, everything under security uh, 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 justification. In his mind, security 
even more important uh, in his uh, overall policy making uh, spectrum. And uh, if there's conflict between security, here we are talking about regime security mostly. Of course, also national security, but regime security is a top, top consideration in his mind. So there is a conflict between regime security and economic development, for example. He will choose economic security over everything. And even between uh, 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 regime security and domestic uh, stability, he will uh, sacrifice even stability for regime security. That's what we see today in China. I was in China. It's really not only surveillance state. It's unstable. Mm. Uh, my this trip, I I was in China for five days last week. Met a lot of uh, former colleagues. The most I heard, I was so shocked, was complaining, <laughs> was complaining, uh, personally complaining, and also talk about the. Uh, possible unrest mm -hmm. in China. So he is, because the um, fiscal situation and the local level, everything you talk yeah. no local local level is so unstable. Mm -hmm. But for him, who cares? Just my power. Mm. Whoever talk about that, put in jail. That's his uh, approach at this time. So it's a very pes pessimistic, also domestically, I would think. Yeah. Well, I, I, if I can ask a question, a follow-up question on that rather than a comment. but. Uh, you know, obviously books take a little while to come out, and there have been a lot of important developments since the book came out. And I think in particular, you know, you talk a lot about nationalism and national pride and patriotism. And I think the end of zero COVID, it seems to me, has and the economic downturn has, has shattered a lot of that patriotism. So I wonder, on that side, is how, how the relationship between Xi and this sort of assertive patriotism has shifted. And then I also wonder, I mean, today, Li Shangfu is out, right? And Xinjiang, we know with these, these top you know, the defense minister, foreign minister have been pushed out. So we talk about institutionalization under Xi and loyalty. Does that indicate a, a shift in Xi's foreign policy institutionalization? Uh, uh, first of all, talking about the nationalism, uh, the, uh, the first 10 years of uh, Xi's uh, uh, reign uh, um, generated uh, a new generation of uh, Chinese nationalists. Mm -hmm. These are young people. Uh, they were uh, they grew up uh, during so-called patriotic education, and uh, China's uh, economic boom rise. So not like my generation uh, had a uh, memory, many memory of uh, China's weakness. For these people, they only saw China's uh, pride, China's uh, rise, and also uh, brand uh, washed by those uh, patriotic education, the party never made mistakes. <laughs> Did not know anything about the uh, Granny Forward mm -hmm. or the even Cultural Revolution. All we remember was the success of the China's uh, economic development. And also they could not, in that case, they could not tolerate any criticism of the Communist Party and regime. Uh, in that context, uh, the zero COVID is a turning point yeah. to these uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, little pinks, Xiao uh, 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 these people, uh, because suddenly they realized uh, their lives were so vulnerable, and uh, 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 especially during the pandemic, those years, the Chinese economy suffered so much they cannot find jobs. Mm -hmm. The youth unemployment is so high. And uh, so their nationalist uh, uh, feelings, I think, were hurt mm -hmm. during those last several years. And uh, a lot of them uh, have a Chinese called Tangping, mm -hmm. uh, life flat. Uh, when I say life flat, uh, meaning they either just do nothing or going abroad, try to get out of China mm -hmm. as much uh, they run, run out of China, uh, and these people. Uh, but despite this, I, last week was my first time to go back to China. I try to talk to people how they feel about uh, this, but still the propaganda has been so successful. Xi Jinping, even though they su suffered in uh, the last several years, but they thought America is e even, even much worse mm -hmm. shape. That's what I try to 
understand right. these people. So in that car. In that context, success for information control and uh, the the uh, the propaganda, how much these people will turn their feeling of the nationalist uh, confidence into uh, uh, angry or uh, uh, discontent against Xi's regime? I don't know how how much these people will go that far. That's what I want to understand myself mm -hmm. at this point. Uh, instead of in, in, in terms of Li Sangfu, Qing Gang, this type of uh, purges uh, by Xi Jinping, I think this is a very very strong sign of uh, the trouble of uh, Xi's uh, regimes mm. at this moment. He could not trust anyone, and uh, he eliminated all those uh, potential rival factions. Everything now, new factions are emerging. With his own uh, people, and uh, these people, I think, uh, except Qing Gang's case, uh, Li Sangfu and all those military journals, uh, they were purged, both because they are called Yang Mianren, two faces of uh, people in front of. She, they told him how, how loyal we are to you, and also we are uh, uh, capable to do what you uh, ask us to do. But behind him. They will talk another totally different right. things, do totally different things. So these are different. This is not political rivalry. It's just uh, he's in his uh, his mind not loyal enough, mm -hmm. and uh, so he pursed all those people, and uh, so is he. This regime that can is on the mind. His authority, confidence among his own people, could be. On the mind, lost. So this sign of big trouble coming, but I don't know how much because uh, in the PRC history so far, we have not seen any leader because of this type of problems will be will lose power. Mao Zedong stayed until all all the time, so he could be in the same situation. Unfortunately, that's the last week I talked to people. So many people are unhappy, but the, at the end of conversation said, "What we can do." Nobody can do anything at this time. He can solidify his power, the military, the, 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 the security forces, and also propaganda. He controlled everything. Nobody dares to openly challenge him. That's the problem China today. Well, we just have a few more minutes, but we have some good questions from the virtual audience, and I, I want to put them on the table, and you can you can pick the ones you want to uh, answer. I mean, one of them is, uh, in, uh, in it, how, how to understand U.S.-China competition in the context of the, uh, I assume, economic interdependence between the two countries. And the second really relates to the work we do here at USIP in terms of conflict prevention, uh, a, a question about whether it's possible for the U.S. and China to collaborate at all uh, in, resol in resolving major con conflicts, and of course, I think foremost on people's mind, Ukraine, and, and the situation in the Middle East. So those are two questions. We have more, but why don't I just let you pick either either okay, one I or try to t tackle both quickly? I don't know. I can tap these two together. Uh, uh, last week when I was in Beijing, uh, in in that uh, forum, uh, at the end, uh, I told uh, my audience, I said I came from the United States, also I came from China. So I have a dream. These two countries can work together because I benefited from this relationship. And these are two most powerful nations on Earth. So if these two countries can work together, a lot of problems in today's world can be resolved. Although they work together may not resolve all the problems, but many problems could be resolved. Unfortunately, at this time, I don't see that possibility. So I see my own mission, or my own <laughs> type of uh, uh, job is to uh, help both sides to understand the, the issues and find the ways to work together. On those big issues such as Taiwan and uh, 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 regime, I mean ideological conflicts and also so-called stru structural uh, conflicts, rising power and uh, incumbent power. On those issues, I don't think we can find solutions anytime soon. But the other than those issues, those non-traditional uh, uh, security issues, economic, 
uh, issues. I think we can work together. In fact, the next week for, uh, we have a policy dialogue. In fact, I invite Carla to join us in Beijing. She, um, cannot find time, but in any case, I have a. Uh, we have uh, three sessions. One session is a tradition, uh, non-traditional security, and uh, Oriana. She, I put her in that uh, uh, section. She emailed me, why we talk non-traditional security? And uh, we should talk about big uh, regional security uh, and uh, uh, Taiwan issue. I said everybody is talking about those issues. Because everybody is talking about that issues, we don't find solutions on those issues. We have to talk about those issues people don't talk much, such as uh, the, 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 the drug trafficking uh, and the fentanyl issue in the U.S. is such a big issue here. We want China side to understand uh, those issues. In fact, we can collaborate on those issues, economic interdependence, and also the, uh, the, the pandemic. All those issues, we can work together. We can put this side, at least for, 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 for without solution at this time. And uh, then we see how far we can go from there. Otherwise, we all emphasize Taiwan issue. We go nowhere. <laughs> thank you so much, Sui-Sheng. We'll leave it there. And thank you, David, for your incisive comments. And uh, thanks the, uh, to the audience for joining us and, and all of your great questions. And I hope you'll stay on and, and uh, enjoy a small reception outside the room. And, and uh, sorry that the virtual audience can't enjoy it with us. Signing off here at USIP. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.